we approach the reading of God's word singing that song. That song is one that reveals the, the great honor of being part of the feast in the new heavens and the new earth. It reveals the wonder at us as sinners who could enter this feast. And we sing that particular song as we approach this text from Exodus as Exodus 33, if you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus 33, presents a threat. Presents a threat to that very feast. Presents a threat to all of the blessings of God for his people. We remember, as we began last week, reading of the golden calf. We continue that narrative. This is still the fallout, we could call it, the fallout to that sin and how Moses and how God are responding. And Moses is being that intercessor, as we saw last time. He's protecting the people. He's being their voice, their representative. And here there is another threat. Before we read from Exodus 33, let's ask God's blessing. Dear Father, as we turn to your word, as we read your holy, inspired, inerrant word, we pray we would treat it as we would treat you, your words, with honor and respect, that we would hear them and that you would speak to us, convict us of sin, and also give to us encouragement. But most importantly, we have gathered together to worship you, to worship you specifically through your Son. And may we see here in Exodus 33 the the precursors, the various elements of the text that point to our Savior, that we might grow in our appreciation for all that you have done to our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 33, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. <clears throat> and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. 
Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. People of God, we, in this text, see that threat. We see a grave threat. And it is masked in a certain, a certain promise, a certain, the, the Lord will give something. The Lord will give the land to the people. The Lord will wipe out the inhabitants. He'll push them from the land. He'll give them that. But he will not go with them. What a threat. You see, this raises the question, the question that I want us to consider this morning. Do you want the God or the goods? Is it the goods that matter, or is it the God? If, if you could have the goods, and what do I mean by the goods? The blessings, the, the blessings of following God. Here we see it as, if you could have your enemies wiped out, placed in your own land with all the blessings, this land flowing with milk and honey, be established as your own nation, and we could apply it to our own lives, if you could have all of the goods that following God might give you, community, blessings a place to come, if you could have freedom from anxiety and yet not have, have that dangerously holy God in your midst, not have that one you, you must obey and follow and serve, if you, if you could have the blessings without God, what would you do? You see, it, it, it's tempting. We still have a sinful nature within us. It's tempting to think, oh, I could have the blessings, but be my own God. We, we don't need to follow that God who, who has been so dangerously holy, as we've seen throughout Exodus. That God, if we were to offend, he would strike us down. We, we can have the land without him. You know, in one sense, this is the best thing Israel could hope for. They, as we saw last time, basically cheated on God on the wedding night. The very moment the covenant was given, as Moses was up there receiving the law, as God was writing the law and the covenant on the tablets, the people sinned and committed idolatry. Isn't this the best option? Moses, their mediator, has gotten them to a point where they won't be destroyed. In fact, 
The, the, this marriage, this covenant could be divorced and nulled, and they'd still receive a settlement offer. The land as, as a blessing. Boy, isn't, isn't that the best they could hope? You see in this text, Moses, that representative of the people, functioning so well in his office at this moment, will not allow it. You see even how the people respond in a rare show of wisdom. They know this is, as the text says, a disastrous word. It may sound like a good deal, like the best they can get, but is the goods without the God even worth it? We see that. We see that in what Moses said, and this is our first point. God, go with us. That's Moses' appeal. God, go with us. And in response to that offer, we see verse 3, where God says, But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. What is a stiff-necked person? That is the idea of a yoke. A stiff-necked animal, or as it's referring to this, would not submit, would not submit to the yoke of servitude. These, these stiff-necked people, and they will be called that routinely, aren't those who will submit to God. They don't put themselves there. They want to throw the yoke off. And God is saying, if I go up among you, I will consume you. You are the stiff-necked people. You will not follow into this tempting offer. We see that God asks Moses this question, gives him the, the, this option to ask ourselves, how often aren't we more interested in the goods than not the God? Could we flip the question? And would we respond and say, all I want is the God, not the goods? Would it be better for Moses and Israel to say, you can destroy us here, but do not leave us. Do not forsake us. We, we don't need the land. As long as we can stay with you is that our response? Is that the response that the people should give? We're talking about what is a dangerous thing. This was the way the devil tempted our first parents. You can become like God without God. Receive the goods of God and yet you don't have to follow him. In a similar way, the devil tried to tempt Jesus. Get the goods, and the goods in this case would have been freedom from hell itself, from suffering on the cross. Being the Lord of the world, all he would have to do is bow to Satan, receive the blessing, just not, not God's way. It's tempting for us to think our old man, a man craves this. Our motivations to obey God are not always so pure. Sometimes we're fueled by a desire for those blessings. Sometimes all we're after is confidence. We turn to God and to his word because we feel better. We want confidence. Sometimes all we're after, after is an antidote for, to anxiety. I just want a God that I can bring my request to and he can remove this burden from my back, take it away. Sometimes all we're after is a drink of comfort. Sometimes all we're after is a lifestyle, a church community that we can attend, come to church, have friends, have good people around us. All those are good things. And yet sometimes we do look to them more than to God. And that's why this text shows us the right way to respond. It shows how God's people should never reject God for any blessing. 
Verse 4 shows how the people saw his word. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. What, what are these ornaments and the significance of that? Well, taking off ornaments and the way you would decorate you, your jewelry, these things, that was a sign of mourning. You were taking it off because you were mourning. But even more than that, in the last chapter, we saw it was these very ornaments that they had used to create the golden calf. They had taken the earrings and jewelry and had melted them together, forming the golden calves. And so here it's not only a sign of mourning, but it is an act of rejection, of idolatry. They are turning away from these things by which they created their own little lowercase g god. And so they take off their ornaments, and they know what is right. They didn't fall for it, and neither should we. I want to read a quote from John Calvin. He says it well. It might indeed at first sight seem delightful to be the masters of a rich and fertile land, but dull as the people generally were, God smote them suddenly, so that all its delights became insipid, and its fruitfulness like famine itself when they perceived that they would be but fatted unto the day of slaughter. What an expression, that they would be but fatted unto the day of slaughter. He continues, A useful piece of instruction is to be gained here. If we neglect God's favor and are captivated by the sweetness of his blessings, we are ensnared like fishes on a hook. Blessing without God is not the true sense of blessing. God gives and graciously gives to his people. There is common grace. God gives. God does give blessings to the world. And yet, all of these things that he could give you without him will, in the end, prove fruitless. Without God, there is no true blessing to be gained. Without God, you have lost it all. The very glory of God is what we are after, and that is what the people were offered, the very presence of God. And so to say you can receive the world's blessings, but just lose me in the tabernacle, all of this will cut this out and I won't go, and that's not an option. And that's not an option for us. We love our Lord. We do not desire even the blessings of the world if we were to lose him. That's what we see in this text. Don't miss the God because of his blessings. That's as Calvin says, it's like a fish, not seeing the hook of the blessing. When we are devoted only to what he may give, we are ensnared. The goods cannot trump God, and living isn't truly good without him. It isn't truly a blessed life. And that's one of the things, that's the main thing I hope we receive from this message. Be consumed with God. Are we consumed with God? Is that the purpose of our life? That we would take any life, we would take the absence of blessing if we could just have God. That's the price we're willing to pay, being consumed with him. And so we see Moses will not allow it. 
You see verses 7 through 11 provide contextual material. It is, it is just put there to give you background. And the background it's giving to you is how the Lord had been removed from the, the camp. And there's this tent of meeting set up. That's likely not the tabernacle, though it's called the same thing. It was likely some sort of tent, or perhaps it was the tabernacle. or That's what Kelvin would say. Kelvin would say that this isn't chronological, that the tabernacle had already been made at this point. I'm not persuaded of that. I believe this is likely a tent of meeting before the true tabernacle set up. And so it interjects this, provides this material to show that it is only Moses who can approach God. And so the people would stand at their tent and worship as their intercessor would approach the tent of meeting, as God and the pillar would descend and so they could commune. And their hope was in Moses here. Moses is rescuing the people through his intercession and relationship with God. So you have this this contextual material. Then we come to verse 14 and following. We see what Moses does in his intercession, very similar to what we saw last week, and this is beautiful. It's beautiful to see as a prelude to our own Savior's intercession. Moses was not going to leave without God. He knew that all the blessings of the Lord would not matter without God's abiding love. And so verse 13 How does he do it? How does he intercede? Verse 13 shows he puts it on himself. If I have found favor in your sight, show me how to find more favor in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. That's, in essence, what he's saying. I am their representative. If I have found favor in your sight, listen to this request. Remember, these people are yours. We saw this last time. Moses continues to set himself up as their, their shield and barrier at the same time, bringing the Lord, the people, bringing the people to the Lord, I should say. These are your people. Remember your promises. This is what Moses is saying. And then verses 14 to 17, we see that God likely promised to go with Moses alone, but Moses continues to plead on behalf of the people. And as verse 16 says, otherwise no one will see that Moses has God's favor. He says, what's, really, what's the point? If, we, if you don't go up with me, if we don't show your favor, if the people don't have your favor, then what's the point of all this? What's the point of Exodus? What's the point of what you've done? What's your promises? No one will see that you've placed your favor on these people. And then you see the result, verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses And the favor he has found with God spares the people. And this is so clearly Christological. So clearly points to what Christ is in his role as the greater Moses, the greater intercessor and mediator. The mediator and the favor which he possesses shields the people. And we have so much greater in Christ. Who we are in Christ is so much greater than this because Our intercessor is he who will never lose the presence of God. As he intercedes at God's right hand, he is the very Son of God, an immovable object and fixture to which we are joined by faith. We cannot lose the presence of God when we are in Christ. It cannot be done. This is exactly the way that Christ intercedes for us, his people. There will never be a loss of God's favor on our behalf because of Christ so clearly pointing to Christ through Moses and how he spares the people the loss of the very presence and gift of God's 
going with them. And so we see Moses' request. Moses' request was, God, go with us. But now we see another request in our second point. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. Immediately after God tells Moses that he will listen, he will go with the people, verse 18, Moses says, please show me your glory. This transition in one sense might seem abrupt, but it makes sense. Why does it make sense? The very thing Moses was after, the very presence of God, the very glory of God that he was after, now God says, I will go with you. You have found favor in my sight. And what does Moses ask? Does he just say, okay, great, and wipe his hands and walk down the mountain? My task is done. I've achieved it. He goes a step further. He goes a step further and he says, God, show me your glory. That intertextual material we saw, it it had said Moses would speak to God. They were like friends. There was a face-to-face interaction. And yet he's asking for something even more here. This shows the heart of a follower of God. Once you see a little of God's glory, you need more. You want more. Right after Moses gets this great, something of almost an invitation from God. I know you by name, Moses. Show me more of you, Moses desires. That's kind of outrageous. Why is that outrageous? God's own very words to Moses would be, if you were to see my face, you'd be consumed like a bug to a bug zapper. You'd just be gone. You can't see the glory of God and live. And yet Moses says, show me it. The desire of all our hearts is to be consumed with God and his glory. There is nothing like witnessing the glory of God. Now, how can we even know that? How can we even know that? We have seen God in his word. His word has declared to us the glory of God. And have you experienced that? That times when you read God's word, you're finally able to put aside all of the distractions in life, you're able to focus, and there is within you this acknowledgement of who God is, and it's wondrous. It's wondrous to see and experience Do we wonder then that Moses would say, show me more? It's like a drug in one sense. Why am I comparing the presence of God to like a drug? Well, a drug, drugs are like a false way of trying to imitate this. It's a false way of trying to give you some euphoric experience and drugs don't work. But in one sense, we can speak of it like seeing the glory of God for us is like a drug. And I don't want the negative connotations with that. What I want is that experience of who God is. There is nothing more beautiful. There is nothing grander than that. Moses knows this, and so he craves to see more of God, seeing God's glory. If I have found favor in your sight, show me, show me your glory. And Moses displays the whole point. That's why this isn't a disjointed text. The whole point of this is, is it the goods or is it the God? Can you leave the presence of God and be fine? And Moses is showing, no. Moses is showing he doesn't need the blessings like that, those blessings of the land and the world. What he wants is God. 
The greatest blessing that Moses could have is to see God honored and glorified. And then notice the gracious response of God. This is an outrageous request. Moses is a sinner. Moses is not worthy. Moses cannot see God and live. He's asking for something that if God were to fully answer would destroy him. And yet God does not just turn from the request and this shows the request was pleasing to God. God says, you will see part. You will see my back. I will hide you and protect you from even my glory that you may see it in a greater sense, in a greater way. That's what verse 19 following says. I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you. And this is interesting. Moses asked, show me your glory. And what does God say? I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will proclaim my name. Moses saw something. God allowed some visible manifestation of something glorious to represent who he is as a pure spirit. That's what we would say. He accommodates himself. God does not possess a physical reality. And so what Moses saw was God showing him in a physical way something of his glory. But we'll see this more next time. We're not going to go into it this morning, rather to introduce it. How does God show Moses his glory? It's, it's less that manifestation that we don't know what Moses saw, and it's more the revealing of his character in his name. He's merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He is just. We'll see that next time. But that is what Moses receives. And so we see that Moses has the glory of God brought to him in this request. God graciously responds. We long to see the unfiltered glory of God in heaven. That will be a glorious day. But what's truly amazing is that we have seen the glory of God in Christ. What's truly amazing is we sit here and likely many of us are thinking, oh, I would love to just have been on Mount Horeb, to have been on Mount Sinai, to, to have seen what Moses saw. That, that's the epitome, the epitome of revelation. Boy, what, to reach that point, it's truly amazing to realize, people of God, that that would be a step back for us. Really? Is that really a, a downgrade to what you experience right here? And the answer is yes. Not because there isn't glory to be seen, but because we've seen it in a clearer way in Christ. If God's response to Moses was to say, I will pass before you, I will show you my glory, I will declare to you my name, well, how much greater is it Christ who declares the very being of God himself? So when we are called to ask to see the glory of God, God, show me your glory, are we supposed to get flights and fly to the Middle East and go try to find the mountain and go find that cleft and sit there and say, we're waiting? Or do you grab that book in front of you and take up and read? What is a greater expression of the glory of God? I'm not trying to pit, oh, this is better and this is not better. What I'm trying to show 
is that we can literally achieve the same thing Moses did by reading God's Word and revealing Christ. God's Word that reveals to us the most clear expression of the glory of God when Christ himself would say, to see me is to see the Father. To know Christ is to know God. And not in some glory cloud that isn't revealed or explained but in the very expression of who God is explained to us through Christ and through his word. That is what we are called to do. Beware looking for the goods, not the God. Beware of that temptation. And how do you fight it? It's a pursuit of God. It's doing what Moses did. It's pursuing him. It's the prayer we should say, Lord, show me your glory. And what we mean when we say that is, let me know you more. Increase and strengthen my faith. Reveal more of who you are to me. That is a pursuit of Christ in his word and in prayer. It's even in our actions. Our actions are a pursuit of God's glory. Why? Because we want God displayed in his glory through our actions. And we want our actions and our whole life to be in accord with that profession of faith. And we want those actions to show our hearts with its only desire is to be consumed with God and who he is. There's nothing like it. Which is why God's word would say, throw off everything else. The kingdom of God is that pearl in the field. Sell everything else for it. Knowing Christ as your Savior is the greatest expression, the only thing worthy of pursuit, the only thing that fulfills and satisfies. And it's not even that we are seeking that fulfillment and satisfaction as an end in itself. It's a byproduct of being consumed with who God is revealed in his very character. God gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and a God of justice. A perfect being. Gaze upon him in Christ and always seek him in his word. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, As we have seen in the text before us, we see that there is no greater blessing than to know you. We see that the loss of your presence, were you not to go with the people, it is disastrous to us. And Lord, we pray that you would create in our own hearts a continued fear of the Lord, which is a respect and an awe and an all-consuming desire to know you, to obey you, to glorify your name, and to see you more and more. Stoke the flames in our hearts. Even as we leave here this morning, as we come again this evening, we pray that it would be revealed again. And as we head into the week and go to our jobs, we pray that we would not lose sight of this, that we can be consumed with your glory, we can be consumed with consumed with knowing you as we work, as we pray, as we live. And Lord, we do make the same request of Moses. Show me, show us your glory. 
We understand that as a prayer. Lord Jesus, come that we may see you, your transfigured, holy nature, your holiness coming to us as you come again. We pray, Lord, come quickly. In Jesus' name.